Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Today's episode of Growth Everywhere is brought to you by Single Grain. Single Grain is a digital marketing agency ran by yours truly that has helped venture-backed startups to Fortune 500 companies grow their revenues online. Single Grain covers services such as search engine optimization, Facebook advertising, Google advertising, YouTube advertising, content marketing, and conversion rate optimization. To learn more about Single Grain, go to www.singlegrain.com grow to learn about eight marketing campaigns that we've used in the past to help uh, clients grow, including the one that helped generate over 1,500% return on investment. Hi, everyone. In today's interview, we're talking to Ian White, who is the CTO and co-founder of SailThrough. Now, SailThrough is a really interesting technology. Um, it's a little complex, so I'm going to let Ian explain it because he knows how to articulate it better than I can. Um, but it's it's something, you know, it's a really interesting company because they bootstrapped for the first two years when a lot of people were, you know, they, a lot of people didn't believe in the technology. And then, you know, lo and behold, now, you know, they're doing low seven figure deals and, you know, they're, they're doing really well right now. Um, Ian will talk about how it is to, um, you know, what he believes should be, how, why he believes you know, the, the founding team um, should all be technical. You know, his CEO is technical. Um, you know, he, he's technical himself. He's VP of engineering, obviously technical too. Um, kind of the benefits around that. Um, also talks about, you know, what you should do when, uh, when someone that you've worked with for a while, you know, a hire that you've worked with for a while was great in the beginning, but is no longer fit at a certain point. You know, what do you do in that certain uh, situation? Um, and also he talks about how to do, how to hire technical talent, which is, I think, a challenge that everyone really faces. Um, it's a challenge that, uh, you know, I, I, that I'm always puzzled about as well because finding technical talent is, is really tough. So a lot of gold nuggets in here. Uh, you know, be sure to stick around to the end because he has um, some really good insights and some cool books to share as well. So enjoy the interview. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. Today, we have Ian White, who is the CTO and co-founder of SailThrough. Ian, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for being on the show. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background first, and then we can jump into the company. Yeah, absolutely. So SailThrough uh, really came out of uh, a, a meeting between myself and uh, my co-founder, Neil Capel. I've been programming my whole life. I've been building things since I was 10 years old. Uh, went to Brown, studied computer science and theater. Uh, and uh, I had a background in, in both, and I moved to New York City. And when I moved to New York in uh, 2005, the tech scene was really just, you know, in its infancy. There was a little bit of a hangover from the dot-com era, and uh, I, I moved into the city. And one of the first people I met was Neil, who was CTO at a company called Money Media. It was a financial publishing company, later sold to the Financial Times. And we worked together there uh, for, for a year or two. And we had the problem there that all of the users, it was, it was, you know, it was financial publishing for 
folks in you know the 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 mutual fund industry etc and they would get content every day sent to them at the beginning of the day it had to it had to be emailed right on time and we wanted to make the content that people got specific to that individual but there wasn't a great way to do that the you know we used we used an email vendor for that which was just not a very sophisticated vendor the apis kind of sucked uh, and so we had that challenge, but we, you know, we solved a lot of a lot of interesting scaling problems at at that company. And then we worked together at a few other different companies. Uh, we we were at a company called Music Nation, uh, which was a startup, which which really didn't work out so well. Uh, but it was while we were there uh, that we came up with the initial idea that became Sail Through, which was what if we had a technology that could truly personalize one-to-one communications on an individual basis. What if we could do that, not just in email, but we could pull together a user's data from on-site, their whole clickstream activity, what are they clicking on, what are they looking at on the site. Uh, later on, we added mobile to the equation, and, uh, and of course, shopping cart activity. What are people buying? What are they adding to their cart? If we could pull all this together, and form a unified picture of each individual, then the way you communicate with those people could be could be totally personalized and individualized. And you know, it's really the set of technologies that you know are available now for personalization for uh, big data for building interest profiles on users is just different than the capabilities you know 15, 20 years ago. And so we were able to build a communications personalization platform natively on top of new set of technologies. So, you know, I, I used MongoDB as a great real-time data store uh, when we were sort of building out the, the product. At the same time, I had been over at, at Business Insider. I was the first technical person over there. I built out the, the initial uh, tech infrastructure for them. And, uh, you know, that was... A, a, a sister company of MongoDB. So I started using MongoDB in production there. I think I was the first person not at MongoDB to use MongoDB in production. And um, I was able to use uh, you know my, my experience with Mongo and it specifically it's real-time capabilities to, to build out the infrastructure behind Sailthrough. So we, we basically, we incorporated the company in the fall of 2008. We'd been working on the prototype and sort of bootstrapping. We, we incorporated the company. And in the same week, we incorporated the company, Neil got married, and Lehman Brothers crashed. Oh, so it fantastic. Was, <laughs> it was a, a busy, busy week in September, and it was basically probably the worst time to start a company in the last several years, for sure, uh, certainly since the first dot com bust, and uh, we we really we just had to had to bootstrap for a little while. But in some ways, that was good because it allowed us to really focus on building out the product, building out the capabilities of the product, making it better, starting to get those early those early customers and advocates that believed in the technology but knew that. What we had at that time was wasn't that sophisticated uh, in in terms of 
you know, the, the full capabilities, but we iterated really fast, took a lot of feedback and really drove forward, you know, at, at that time, sending an email where every piece of content in that email is completely personalized and recommended for the user. There was a lot of skepticism, frankly. That like people were like, we're we have we have email editors who they their job is to go in and pick which content goes where. And you know, we know better than than an algorithm, right? Like human humans are, are gonna always pick out the best story. Well humans can be can be good at picking out the best the best story or the best product, but not for every single individual person, you know? Mm -hmm. So proving out, proving out the technology and proving out the use case through A-B testing and demonstrating the type of lift and type of results that we were seeing was really, really important in those early days and just building out the tech. So, you know, 2009 uh, came and went and it was a, you know, it was a, it was a real time of, sort of growing and building. Uh, and then by, you know, towards the end of 2009 was really, I, I feel like in New York, where you started to see just the, the whole environment, uh, you know, start to, start to accelerate and start to, start to pick up. And, you know, it's, it's, it's 2014 now. I, I'd say when you really look at the growth of New York tech, it's been like the last, the last five years is really kind of the, the arc with it getting you know, uh, more and more activity every year. And so um, by, by the end of, of 2009, beginning of 2010, we were, we were in a position to, to start raising some money. And uh, so we got some interest. Years. So we bootstrapped for two years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, we basically, we, we talked to a lot of, you know, great New York investors raised a seed round of, of one million in the in June of 2010, and uh, you know, DFJ Gotham led the round, but there were there were seven different uh, great VC firms involved uh, on that seed round, and so that capital really really helped us in terms of accelerating the growth of the business. It allowed us to hire our first account managers, our first sales reps, uh, and really be able to just accelerate what we were doing. Uh, and that, that period from, uh, you know, from 2010 on, you know, in the last four years, we've, we've just grown massively. We've gone from, from the founders to uh, about 170 employees. We have offices in four cities, including L.A., where you are right now. Uh, but we have an office in L.A., San Francisco, and London. I'm actually heading out to the London office this Sunday. Nice. And, uh, and we're headquartered out of, out of New York City. And most of the company, most of, of the, the staff is here in New York. And this is where our, this is where our engineering is, is headquartered, and this is where uh, – most most of the activity takes place, but all those all those remote satellite offices are are very significant as well. They're all about you know maybe ten folks per per office. Got it. Okay. So can you talk about that experience? You know, bootstrapping two thousand eight to growing to to one seventy one seventy employees. You know, what does that story look like? Yeah. So it's really when I look back at the last you know six years. You, 
it's almost, it's many, many different companies, right? And when a company is growing as fast as sell-through has over the last several years, things change really quickly. And the dynamics of just a couple people, you know, in a room versus a slightly larger team uh, of, you know, maybe 10 to 15 people, 10 to 15 people, totally different company than three. Mm -hmm. And... Then you take it up to 25, 30, and that's a fundamental difference, too, because at 10 to 15, everybody sort of knows what everybody else is doing. You get to 25, 30, you need a little more process, a little more structure, and you continue scaling that, and at every step of the way, you have to keep questioning your current process and keep changing it, and people whose you know, roles and skills make sense at one at one uh, environment might not make sense at another, or maybe not in the same role. So uh, you just have to growth technology. These things inherently mean change, and one of one of the things you you just have to do is is keep uh, keep being responsive to change, and um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of different challenges. I, you know, I mean, I can talk about the growth of, uh, you know, the tech team, especially from from my perspective. But really, all across the company, it's been it's been about eight eight different companies, and there have been a lot of people who've been with us the whole way. Uh, but it uh, it just it just keeps changing, and you have to really be responsive to just what what the current challenges of the situation are, right? Because like a SaaS company, it starts to take on some momentum, right? It's, it's, like, a, it's like a boulder rolling down the hill, right? Um, you know, you, you generate more recurring revenue, that drives the success of, of the business. And, um, and you, can, you can scale, you can grow when you have that, that customer base that is loyal that sticks with you that, uh, that that you're building on top of, but those those early days when you're bootstrapping, it's really just about finding that product market fit at all, right? Because you have a, you have a product vision, you have something you're trying to build, and you put it in you put it in customers' hands, and you sort of see what works. So in the early days, it's certainly from a you know from a technology and product standpoint, we would try out lots of different ideas and, and, and see what would work. Um, and it becomes very very important to not get too attached to the ideas that don't work out, kill them quick, and double down on on the ideas that do work. And trying to be trying to be data driven about those types of decisions, you know. But in SaaS with B two B you know your customers, right? Like you, you sit in a room with, with your customers, you're on a call with your customers, and you can hear from them directly about what their pain points are and how your software that you're building can either help them or, you know, or, or, or is not meeting their needs. So as much as, as much as you try to make decisions on, you know, the most objective sort of set of framework that you can. A lot of it is really just like synthesizing what they're saying, what their what their problem is, and how how rapidly can you deliver something that, that solves that problem. 
and you know it really is it really is the the eighty twenty right you know there's especially in the in the early days a uh there are a lot of ways you can deliver a a, a feature or a result with a very high power to weight ratio where you can develop something and you know it it can it can really swing a, a big impact for for a customer so um and at the same time, when you're small uh, and, and you're dealing with customers, you know, I mean, we, have, we have some just fantastic brands. I mean, you know, four years ago, we, we, were, we were working with Huffington Post and, and AOL, and, you know, they're still clients today, of course. But, you know, especially for us as a, as a small, as a very small company, um, you don't want, you don't want to let a customer or a single customer dictate your entire strategy. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to find the right balance between what are the things that, you know, sort of synthesize and hear what, what they're saying and, and, and fit that into the larger vision. This all sort of makes sense. It does make um, sense. And, you know, one thing that, that really um, – that really hit a point. I mean, you know, I, I talked to a few founders on this show, and it's like you know, someone that's a fit at a certain point no longer is a fit at, a, at another point. And so, you know, I, I read this article in Harvard Business Review where uh, Netflix, you know, before they they were sending CDs, and then some people just weren't a fit when they went, moved into the streaming world. So, how do you have these conversations? Can you give me a story or an example of how you've had this, you know, these tough conversations with people? Yeah, I think you know, it's really. It should never be a surprise if someone you know is isn't right for a particular point in the company. Um, I don't want to talk about a specific individuals or anything of that nature, but what I found is people know when when their role isn't right. Like when people are in the right role, like everything is everything is executing. You know, just like. Results are happening, and you know, and you can you can set objectives and, and hit those objectives. And when people are just sort of are are not, you know, are not are not there, everybody can kind of feel it. And and what you try to do is put people in the position where they're going to succeed. Mm -hmm. And and you know that's that's just that's what you what you do. You you know, with a startup, with a high growth company, everybody's going to grow. And I've I've seen some individuals who've been with this company just just grow so much over the last few years um, but you know you just you, you have to you just always have to do what's best for for the business okay now 170 employees and you know what do what do revenues or number of users look like today I can't talk about revenue uh, private company we don't disclose that uh, we've got about 400 customers mm -hmm. uh, you know and um, you know, we uh, we have deal size that goes into the low seven figures. So, um, you know, it's uh, and I and I can tell you that our our revenue growth has been very very large. We've been uh, we were on the Inc. Uh, we were number thirty on the Inc. Five thousand last year, and the the second fastest growing company in in New York on that on that ranking, and. Uh, We'll do more revenue this year than the prior three years combined. Nice. So, you know, you had Huffington Post and AOL, I think, for the last four years, right? So th that's crazy retention. So what do you guys do in, in, you know, what do you think you guys do that stands out in terms of retaining customers? 
So SaaS stands for software as a service, and there's really two components to that, software and service. And I think providing good software that solves problems that other, other technologies can't do is really, really important. Uniquely differentiated product in the market is inherently sticky. But what comes with that is providing great service and caring about your customers. Like, that's everything. Like, making sure our customer success team is right for any SaaS business, I think, is a really, really critical component. We have a great customer success team. And when there have been times when the product has, has, has not been, you know, has, has fallen down, uh, the customer success team can really help, you know, make things work for, for the customer. And I think people, I think our customers are, are loyal to us uh, because we provide unique value and because they, they trust us. Because we, fundamentally, we're driving results. We're driving massive revenue for our customers. Their success is our success and vice versa. So we look at ourselves as strategic partners for all of our customers. We do, you know, the account manager will do a strategic review with every single one of our customers and look at their metrics, look at the KPIs they're trying to drive through the platform, look at how can we how can we work together to build a personalized marketing strategy that is going to drive your revenue or drive user engagement. And you know, I I think I think customers really appreciate that. Got it. Okay. So you know, by trade, I'm an internet marketer, and it's like, you know, the stuff that you're talking about right now sounds like it's great for marketing automation. So do you guys do anything in that world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, automation is a big piece of the platform. You know, what we really do is we ingest this tremendous amount of data in real time. So every page view that's happening across all of our client sites, that goes into Salesforce in real time. Every purchase or shopping cart activity, we now have an iOS and Android mobile app. So all that data flows into Salesforce, and you can chain events and triggers to any of those any of those events that are flowing into the system. So you can take action on anything that goes on and set up a series of automation. You can say, okay, you know, if this event happens and this criteria is fulfilled, take this action. And then what's really cool is we just introduced uh, Sightlines, our predictions product. So you can take action not just on the events that are happening in real time, but you can take actions on predictions using machine learning models of what users are likely to do. So you can basically say, this user, you, Eric, you're actually really likely to opt out. We've actually made a prediction today, and we predict you're in the top 0.1% of users who are most likely to opt out because we're sending you too much email. We're sending you too, too, much, too much volume and irrelevant messages. And if we send you another email, there's a high probability you're going to churn out and you're going to be gone. So what you can actually do using our tech automatically is just say, all right, the users who are in that high K tile that are very, very likely to opt out, just don't send to them. And then the predictive model will start to even out the, the, the flow of the user naturally because the probability that a user will opt out declines and you, you automatically have predictive uh, cadence uh, automation. 
it, it's really, really cool stuff. I, I get excited about it when I'm talking where about does, it. Where does someone go to learn about predictive, you know, cadence or whatever the stuff that you're talking about right now that is really, it's going to be super important as, you know, it is already super important. So how does, how does someone learn this stuff? I mean, you know, there's, I, I guess there's learning about it from uh, from an, a marketing point of view or what it's capable of doing. And there's, there's really learning the, the technology behind it. That and part. yeah, I mean, Technology behind it really comes from from data science, and and you know data science is such a sort of uh, you know overused buzzword, I guess. But it really does represent a very uh, specific set of skills, uh, the intersection of mathematical modeling and machine learning, and having in an architecture. That's capable of synthesizing, processing all this, all this data. So uh, I think for, you know, for, certainly for any any company that's in our type of space, building a really, really strong data science uh, infrastructure is important, and a team, you know, because we are it's it's a software is a human capital business, and having having the best talent wins. Yeah, so you know, you and your your co-founder. I mean, initially when you guys first start out, I mean, you know, you you guys start to get bigger and bigger. You had 170 employees. You know, how do you find out whether the person, like the like a data scientist that you're hiring, actually knows what they're talking about when you yourself you're not an expert in that field? Well, I'm certainly not an expert, but I I know enough to have a conversation with with somebody and and be able to evaluate their, their level of expertise. When we hired our chief data scientist, Jeremy Stanley, I probably personally interviewed at least 20 people for the role. And, you know, I, we, we, we found the right person based on technical evaluation and also, also personal evaluation. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think, like, the important thing, if, if you build technology, you can't, you can't know everything, right? Like nobody has every piece of tech, technical knowledge. You know, it's 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 too big. But if you speak the language of technology and you understand how to think about mathematical engineering problems, then you can speak the language of somebody, even if they know a specific technology that you that you don't know. Um, but what it becomes really challenging in tech is when somebody who doesn't actually have a technical background tries to evaluate technical folks. That's why you know it's so critical to have a technical founder. And we were really fortunate in our case because we have three technical founders. Uh, Neil, the CEO, is himself you know a former CTO of, of, of many different companies, and Chris, our, our EVP engineering, is uh, just a brilliant ops guy. So when you're building software i think it's really important for the founding team to all be strong in software in technology if you're building if if you're building an internet business where the business is fundamentally not software where the, you know like you know you're a, you're a pure play e-commerce and you know you you sell you sell fashion online then it, then i think it becomes much more important to have somebody uh, on the founding team was really, really great, you know, expertise in that in that industry. But for technology, you, you got to be technical. It's just it's 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 essential. Got it. So, 
going back to the data science data scientist question, you know, you've you've interviewed two twenty people and everyone's trying to hire data scientists nowadays, right? Where do you go to find this talent? Uh, we did we did retain search for that. Um, although uh, we actually the 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 person we hired we wound up getting through through referral actually. We uh, we we interviewed a, a very very strong candidate for a, a different role uh, who who loved the company and you know really wanted to join us and it it just it, it didn't work out for various reasons but he had, he actually referred us uh, uh, Jeremy Got so uh, thanks thanks to him he knows who he is that worked uh, out <laughs> cool um, so you know you talked about the three founding or you know your your your, your co-founder being a you guys both being technical so. You know, at what point do two technical co-founders decide? Okay, you go do this. You know, I'm going to go. Uh, you know, head up operations division and you know, keeping cash in the bank. Yeah, well, I think it was always it was always clear that uh, Neil would be on the you know the the, the business and sales side. Mm -hmm. But you know, the reality, especially in the early days, everybody does a little of everything, right? But you know, Neil really, uh, you know, just he. He would be the person I could bounce ideas off of because of his level of expertise and because we, we really speak the same language, you know. Uh, we, especially in the early days, I mean, this is why it's also so important to have a pre-existing relationship of some kind with your, with your co-founder. Like if, you know, if you just sort of paired up for, to get into YC or something, like, I, I don't know, like, I, I can only speak for myself, but I... I don't think I would be able to go on a, a seven-year and, and more journey with, with somebody who, uh, you know, I, I, I just, like, paired up with to, like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yep. you, need that, you need that trust, you need that shared, like, communication mm -hmm. where you're on, on the same page. And, um, you know, especially in those early days when we just had to move really fast, the fact that we could both think about the product and what it required in the same way, you know, Neil would be the person who was more meeting with customers, meeting with prospects. So he was playing sort of the role of head of sales and head head of product, and you know, being able to for him to relay that that back to me from the field. Of course, I'd be meeting with customers too, but we had that, that split in the nature of responsibilities. And it's important, you know, for it to be clear, like, he's a CEO, I'm the CTO. Like, the, ultimately, if we, if we disagree about something, it's Neil's call, and I'm fine with that. And we have that, we have that shared trust and, and respect. Like, you know, if, if he, if he uh, you know, if I, if I disagree, that's fine. We're going to go on with our lives, and it's better to make a decision than to uh, to not make a decision. You, you know, because because nobody nobody wanted to to be clear about it. Got it. okay. <clears throat> so, you know, you guys you, you guys started in two thousand eight, and now you guys are closing <clears throat> deals in low seven figures. You know, is there any? How do you guys discuss like pricing? What's the you know, the psychology behind that? Well, our original pricing was a minimum of thirty dollars a month, and it's a lot more than that now. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's pricing is pricing is really really hard, um, and it's it, I, I actually find pricing really fascinating because it's a it's it's a 
It's a technical problem. It's a business problem. It's a sales problem. It's a psychology problem. It's uh, it's a messaging and marketing problem. It, it, it pricing, you know, price is a signal that just embeds so many different things. And uh, you know, you want to you want to charge something that is going to make sense to to customers. You want to charge something that is going to uh, line up with the value that you're providing. Um, and, and you know, we we tried a, a few different models. We're really you know. We now look at it as a as a as a really a user based model because at the end of the day the most important thing that sell through does is store your data about users in a platform with the means to act on it unify all your user data give you the means to act on it so pricing on that number that number of end users that you have makes the most sense. But um, you have to look at the market. You have to look at what competitors that you're up against deals for are doing. And so we're often up against deals with legacy uh, email providers. And so they don't do all the stuff that sell-through does. So we charge it a premium to them. But, you know, we, we want to make sure that our pricing is not going to be just way off the mark to the point where... The, the prospect is going to say, wait a second, like, you know, it looks like this over here, and this is just a completely different different paradigm. But we think about, you know, when, when, you're, when you're entering any kind of market, right, you're either, you're either a, a premium product that provides, you know, unique value and you charge a higher price point, or you're the cheap disruptive product and you charge a lower price point. What you don't really want to be is sort of caught in the in the middle, you know. So understanding where you sit in in that in that market dynamic, we're we're a premium product. We're the we're the best in our space at what we do, and so we charge for that value. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Maybe you know, I, I think I've purchased a few pricing psychology books, and I think I'll need to put these those in the notes. Do you have any books like that? Did you guys read anything like that? Yeah, I, uh, actually, I have not read like a, a book specifically about the psychology of pricing. You know, I read a lot about the topic. But uh, I, do you have a recommendation of, of your own? I I forgot what it was. I, I've purchased so many books. I just have like a stack of Amazon books. Of it. There's like unopened right now, but I'll put it in the notes and I'll let you know too. I think it's a really good one. Um, but um, you know, moving on here. I mean, you, know, you guys have 400 customers now. You know, how did you guys? You know, I'm going to call these, you know, mostly enterprise customers. So, how did you guys get the first, let's just say, 20, 30 customers? Sheer hustle. I mean, if you have an unproven product that you're still working on, you know, really finding the product market fit, you know, you just got to go out there and knock down doors. Now, one thing that helped was, you know, we were able to, we were able to, to use. Uh, companies that, that that we knew personally, you're like, hey, you know, try out our product, like, you know, give it, give it a shot, and and so that, that those kind of early customers were really really helpful because they're they're friendly folks who will will give you feedback, but you have to be providing value. Like, doesn't matter if you're you're friendly with somebody, like if your product isn't any good and it isn't providing value, no nobody's going to use it. So. You know, it, it really it really boiled down to just you know using our, our networks and contacts and just getting 
getting the, the product to, to the right people. But from there, you know, you think about the, the, the adopter curve, right? What's the most important thing in the, in the early adopter uh, stage is references, right? Word of mouth. And to this day, the best, you know, the best uh, leads we will get are from referrals from our customers. Um, you know, we just had, uh, uh, on Wednesday, we did our first ever customer conference, Sale Through Lyft 2014, which was a huge, huge milestone for the company. And one of the things that was amazing about it was just getting so many of our customers in one place talking to each other about all the great things that they're achieving using Sale Through. And building that, that type of community and loyalty around the product is just so important. And it, it doesn't stop being important as, as you scale. If anything, it's more important. But certainly in those early days, you need those, you need those, those early reference customers who are just who love the product and will get on the phone with people and talk about how much they love the product. That's really, really important. Got it. Now, when you gave these away for you know in the, in the early days, you know, did you give them away for free or did you start charging them off the bat? I mean, I think um, the very first prototypes might have been might have been a uh, uh, free button. We charge very very early on mm -hmm. because if you provide like it's a better test, right? Like you can, uh, you know, people will people will always accept free shit, right? Mm -hmm. But like. You know, if, if you're saying, like, here, like, use this instead of what you were using, we're going to charge you a fair price for it, you know, like, now you know if what you built is actually valuable or not, right? Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, we, we, were, we were charging paying customers from, from very, very early on. Got it. Okay. Now... Switching gears a little bit, you know, going back to 2008 and to now, um, you know, what's one big struggle you faced while growing the business? Um, I mean, I think, I think the fundamental struggle is always hiring the right talent and putting them in a great position to succeed. That never stops. It's always a challenge, especially hiring technical talent, you know, so many great startups, so many great companies, uh, you know, and, and you want to you want to keep the bar high and hire the best the best talent you you can find, and um, and we've gotten a lot a lot better at it uh, over the years. But that's that's always that's always the biggest challenge is just making sure you got you got the winning team. Okay. Now, you know, you talked a little earlier, you know, you've gotten referrals, you've gotten, uh, you know, there's also, you know, we'll just call them, um, you know, recruiting firms, you know, what else do you guys do to keep that, that hiring pipeline uh, going? Yeah, I mean, we use a lot of, a lot of different tools, you know, I think we hired an in-house recruiter, probably, maybe earlier on than, than some people would think. It was, it was probably when we were about 20 to 25 employees, we, we hired our first full-time in-house recruiter. And that was a good move. I, I would recommend that again. Um, you know, and I, I think we hired a second, a second recruiter not long after that, actually. So, you know, t today we've got a, we've got a larger talent team and we have a dedicated technical recruiter and, you know, all of those pieces. But, um, there's nothing that, 
you know, external recruiters are what they are. There's some good ones to work with. There are some not as good ones. But nobody is going to be able to sell the company, understand what the company needs, present the, the vision and the culture as well as somebody who is there every day and understands it. And that's why having full-time recruiters, I think, is... I think is really, really valuable. And there is no substitute for uh, founders or leadership being directly involved in the, in the recruiting process. Now, it becomes, it becomes challenging as you scale, right? I'm not on phone screens anymore. Mm -hmm. But I do meet with almost every engineer that we, that we hire. Um, or if I don't, Chris does. Because... We want to make sure that, A, we're presenting the, the, the business and the vision of the company in the best way possible so that, you know, even, even if we don't hire that person, we want them walking away feeling like this is a great place to work because it really is. Like, this is, this is the best company I've ever worked for. I'm a little biased. Mm -hmm. But, um, and, uh, you know, it's just... It, it shows the candidate, you know, commitment. And, uh, and, and I, I, just think it's, I just think it's important. So, like, recruiting is a part. If, if, you're a, if you're a leader at a startup, recruiting is a big part of your job. It just is. It's, it's a pain in the ass sometimes. It can suck. Interviews are not always fun. But it's really, really important. Couldn't agree more. Maybe I need to get a checklist from you um, after after the interview. But uh, moving on, you know, what's what's one piece of advice you'd give to your twenty five year old self? Oh man, my twenty five year old self. Uh, gosh, that's that's hard. I I, I just think. I just think uh, I think just be be ready be ready for change and believe in yourself. Believe in your own ability to 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 execute. Because one nobody nobody in this world really knows what what they're doing, right? Like everybody is learning every day and just learning new things. And I think when I was 25, uh, I, I just, I, I, I still felt like a kid, right? I, I felt like, you know, there were so many people out there who were, who were smarter and more experienced than me and better and like, you know, and I, and I just didn't know anything. And to some extent that was true. Um, but you, you have within yourself a lot more resources than than you always believe you have, and you know everybody who's ever achieved something great has struggled with with doubt and um, and uncertainty, and getting comfortable with that uncertainty, and then just going on to 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 do what you're going to do anyway uh, is is one of the most important things. I mean. There have been so many ups and downs during this journey I've been on, and any startup is like this. There are days when you're on top of the world, and there are days when 
you're, you know, it looks like everything's falling in under you. And just being able to ride that out with some, some real belief in yourself is, is what's important. And I think, you know, over, over the years, I've, I've gained more of that, that confidence, but I, I definitely didn't have it when I was 25. Yeah, no, I, I love it. It's, um, I love that quote. Nobody knows what they're doing. And I think that's actually, that's, that's pretty true. Um, final question from my side. What's one must-read book you'd recommend to the audience? Um, well, I'm going to recommend a, a blog, actually, because uh, sure. I just think for SAS, Saster is like the best. S-A-A-S-T-R. Jason Lemkin's blog, huh? I just, I, I love his blog. I, I read it. Uh, like when I discovered it a year or two back, I just like reread all the archives and he was like talking about all these things that we had experienced and, and, and gone through and I was like, oh yeah. And you know, I continue to read his stuff because I just think it's great. Um, for a book, for a book that people should read, um, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm reading Peter Thiel's book right now, and I, I really like it. It's just I I don't know. If that's the that's the one book. Zero to not, one. Zero to one. Yeah, but I just I I just enjoy. Okay. I enjoy anybody who's who's a contrarian who thinks about things a, a little bit differently, mm -hmm. and um, you know I I I just I always enjoy uh, you know an, an interesting point of view on the industry. Uh, so so that's that's what I'm reading. That's what I'm reading right now. And, and enjoying it, cool. But, uh, nice, you know. So I have so many, so many different books I've I've read in my past. Uh, I, I can't I can't pick one. Oh, that, no, zero to one is a great book. Um, Seth, well, I, I call it Seth Strength almost because it's like S T R. Um, but yeah. Anyway, um, everyone, this is Ian White from Sail Through. Make sure to check out Sail Through. It sounds like they're doing some really cool stuff. Um, Ian, I think there's a lot more to talk about perhaps in the future, but um, for now we're out of time. So Ian, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely, thanks a lot, Eric. Yeah. If you're interested in growing your revenues online and you're tired of ho-hum agency work, then it might be time to check out Single Grain. Single Grain is a digital marketing agency ran by yours truly that has helped venture-backed startups to Fortune 500 companies grow their revenues online. Check out Single Grain at www.singlegrain.com grow to get a free resource on eight marketing campaigns that we've used to help companies grow their revenues online, including the one that drove over 1,500% return on investment. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.